In the economy of words, that last phrase is precious indeed. He who lives to be my king once died to be my savior. Let me ask you to turn again this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you're among the many that have been in and out in these summer weeks of vacation, we thought with the going and coming still, we would put our studies in Romans on a little summer hiatus themselves and just do a brief survey of Paul's letter. I don't know if we'll cross over into the second epistle or not, but his correspondence at least with the church in Thessalonica. And we're coming today to read and to consider the third chapter of the first epistle. So first Thessalonians chapter 3. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone, and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. But now when Demotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if ye stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men even as we do toward you. To the end, He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Well, amen. We trust again the Lord to bless the public reading of His inspired Word. And let's do again, pause and bow our heads together. Ask the Lord's help as we consider His Word today. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in singing the praises of a God who's worthy to be praised. We think of that psalm we opened this morning. The heavens declare your glory. The firmament shows your handiwork. There is revelation. There's light that's shining. We've read in Romans that all are without excuse. But we're grateful that in the mercy and your own eternal plan of the gospel, that you've not left revelation merely to that. We read further in the psalm that the word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. You've sent a message of redemption. And Lord, today we are the recipients of that great message. And we ask that as we come and Focus our thoughts around this epistle that was written to our brothers and sisters of many centuries ago now. 
and that there would also be some food for our souls as the apostles sought to feed and encourage them. And so draw near, free us and help us from all the distractions that are so ready at hand and give us expectant and eager hearts to hear from you. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we combine the record in Acts with what we find in the New Testament epistles, we can begin to form a reasonable picture of the life and the experience of the first century Christians. To me, I've said something along these lines several times in recent years, but to me, this is becoming more and more of a very practical and helpful part of my ongoing meditations and growth. For all of our lives, the circumstances of these first century Christians, their experiences had been locked into the pages of history. It's all been very distant from us. We believe these things happened. We can read in Acts, we can read in the epistles, stories of revival. I mean, the day of Pentecost was, many would argue, the greatest revival in history. Uh, Save that one that, Lord willing, we expect in the very latter days. But we read a record, I say, of revival And it also was a record of persecution, of trials that these first century Christians endured. But it's all just very far removed, or has been, from our experience. Well, perhaps for good or for ill, or maybe for both, things are changing for us. We come and we... Consider what happened to them. And I say it takes less and less imagination to see how our circumstances could become more and more like the circumstances of these first century Christians. It won't take time to turn it up, but if you go back to the book of Acts and you see the record of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica as he went those three successive Sabbath days to the synagogue, opened and alleged from the Old Testament Scriptures that Israel's promised Messiah must come and suffer and die and rise from the dead. And then, of course, he preached to them that Jesus of Nazareth had done these very things. He was indeed the Messiah. And those unbelieving Jews that were unwilling to accept this truth of their Messiah turned to persecute and challenge those among the Jews that believed and those many Gentiles that believed. Even in Thessalonica, prominent people in the city came to the faith. Of the noble women, Luke records, not a few. I make that a little question for the seminary students when we go through Acts because we're so familiar with Paul's words to the church at Corinth. You see, you're calling, brethren. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. Uh, but yet, in Thessalonica, there were some. There were not even a few. Thankfully, God calls and has a people in all ranks of life. And so let us not be poor proud. Think, well, God just saves poor people. And of course, let us not fall into the traps and snares and temptations of the rich either. But here, Thessalonica, they embraced the gospel. And the unbelieving Jews began to stir up trouble. 
they went to the civil authorities and thought up some ingenious charges to bring against these new Christians. And I say it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see how disturbed people, whether they are of the rank and file of the worst of the ungodly and perverse in our culture, or whether at some point, perhaps even in future days, those that would have argued with us on moral issues of our day come to see a distance between themselves and us when we preach Christ and we preach grace and we repudiate self-righteousness. And so persecutions could arise from the right as well as from the left. It's been historically the most fierce persecutions God's people have endured that have come from the right. And that's not to unduly bring politics into the sermons. It's just to say, let us be mindful. I've said often in this pulpit, we have to be wise in such days when it comes to understanding the gospel. We could have more to fear from the political right than the left, even the religious right than the left, because the self-righteous soul does not like to be told that his righteousness isn't enough. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees. And they crucified him. And so I say it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see our circumstances becoming more and more like the circumstances of first century Christians. Last week in chapter 2, we looked at four metaphors that Paul uses of himself in his relationship with the Thessalonian believers. Two of these had reference to truth, the first and the last. He spoke of himself as a steward. He had been given a stewardship. He had been given a possession, if you will, the truth. And he was also compared to a herald, one that proclaimed that truth that he'd been entrusted with. And there were also two metaphors that took their reference point with regard to love. That position of a mother and a father that Paul said he held with regard to these Thessalonians. And I think it's interesting as you look at those four metaphors and yet those two great topics of truth and love. In so many ways, what a summary, an apt summary of faithful Christian ministry. As we come today to chapter 3, We're still in a type of narrative while Paul is reminding them of the things that happened during his time there with them, chapter 2 in particular, and informing them of his heart and actions toward them since he left. That is what's before us today in chapter 3. It's here that we find ourselves musing upon how becoming a Christian had changed and impacted these Thessalonian believers' relationship with their world. And it's here that we can meditate upon our own relationship to our own world that's changing. So I want to survey chapter 3 today, and I want to do so under three very simple headings. Tribulations, endurance, and fruitfulness. Tribulations, endurance, and fruitfulness. As we consider first the theme of tribulations, 
Paul begins to explain to them what he's been doing and his heart toward them in his absence. If you look at the opening verses, you have record of what happened in, Paul as he, in Paul's life as he left Thessalonica. If you remember, and if you can rehearse with me a little bit, we'll not turn it up, but in Paul's second missionary journey, he's taken Silas with him now. Barnabas had been his companion in the first journey. We see in the providence of God that even their disagreement with regard to taking John Mark with them the second time or not was worked out in God's plan. Barnabas was not a Roman citizen. Silas was. Uh, That came in quite handy in the jail cell at Philippi when Paul and Silas were singing at midnight even though they were wounded and bruised. The jailer comes to let them go. It's kind of interesting There's a little bit of humor almost there in these wounded believers. Um, You'd think they open the doors, let's get out of here. But no, there'd been an injustice done. And while it was not their purpose to stick it in the eye, as it were, of the civil authorities, they would point out that what had been done was wrong. They said, we've been beaten, uncondemned, being Romans. Let them come and fetch us out. The men are troubled when they hear this, and of course they come and they release the men and ask them to get on their way. They go from Philippi to Thessalonica. Paul has successful ministry there, as we've seen. A vibrant New Testament church is established, but unbelieving Jews don't want to hear this message of grace. And so they fabricate lies. They charge them. I mean, it always causes me to smile. Uh, There's almost a, a sad humor in the charges that the Jews bring. These, these men that have turned the world upside down are come here too, preaching there's another king. Can you imagine that? Another king instead of Caesar, whom we as Jews adore. Of course, the king Jesus, they were preaching. It's one of Luke's underlying purposes, I think, in Acts. There's no real threat at that time to the Roman Empire, to the civil authorities anywhere. They're preaching the kingdom of God, calling people out of all nations to become citizens of that kingdom, which in the days in which the king of kings tarries makes them the best citizens of all in whatever kingdom they're found. Imagine loving their neighbor and treating their neighbors as they would like to be treated. Sounds like a pretty nice country to live in to me. Sounds like pretty nice neighbors to have to me. But the lies are put forth and Paul and Silas are ushered out of Thessalonica by night. They go to Berea. The Bereans there are ready to hear the word as well, but the unbelieving in Thessalonica say, no, we can't have that. And they journey to Berea. And bring charges against them as well. And Paul is again ushered away. And those that escorted him take him to Athens. And Paul is for a season in Athens alone. Timothy comes to him. Paul is encouraged in that. And yet Paul at pains that we can read and see underneath the surface here. Sends Timothy away. That he might go to the Thessalonians. To sure them up. To encourage them in the faith as we'll see. And Paul has to abide still in Athens for a season alone. His soul is stirred within him as he sees the city wholly given to idolatry. 
He preaches that famous sermon at Mars Hill. Remarkable message. But he leaves Athens. There's no church in Athens. There's no New Testament epistle to the believers gathered in Athens. And when Paul arrives in Corinth, from which he writes these words to the Thessalonians, he arrives there in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul is knowing a valley himself. He's knowing serious trials in his own experience himself. We've talked a little about that in the past. Probably the lowest point in Paul's own life and ministry. Dare we even enter into the words and say that Paul perhaps is flirting with territory that we would call depression. Interesting to think of an inspired apostle and yet a vessel of clay, a man of like passions as ourselves, struggling. But part of his struggle, as Paul says of himself elsewhere, is daily burden that came upon him, the care of all the churches. And so Paul is caring for the Thessalonians. He's mindful of their trials. And so as I say, when we look at this chapter and summarize it, the first word, the first theme out of this chapter is that of tribulations. What does Paul say? Read with me again from verse 3. That no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereto. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation. Even as it came to pass. And you know. There's an interesting little tidbit for the false teachers and those that accused Paul of being a charlatan of just passing through town and trying to get a little money from the people, tickle their ears a little bit, maybe engage in immorality, some perhaps even suggested. It, don't, it doesn't really make for good television preaching and offerings to say, follow me and a lot of bad stuff is probably going to happen to you. You don't get big offerings that way. But follow me, plant a seed and send it in. And I mean, if you send me a thousand, God, he'll probably send you 10,000. Well, Paul didn't make it very high in the ranks of televangelists. He was a faithful minister of the gospel. And in the heart of his message, well, it's the same thing that we find throughout the New Testament. What does Jesus say to his disciples in the upper room? John 16. In the world ye shall have tribulation. What does Paul preach with regard to his first missionary journey and giving record of that? He says in Acts 14 that we through much tribulation should enter the kingdom of God. And this is the part I say that we have had a disconnect with probably all of us in this room for all of our lives. It's the odd joke, the odd friend that makes some joke. You don't, you know, they think it's strange that we run not with them anymore to the same excess of riot. But real trials, 
real persecution, real tribulations, being called up before authorities on false charges. That hasn't been our experience. But we begin perhaps to see it on the horizon. It's not as unrealistic to us as it once was. We think that these things could happen. Not because of crimes that we would commit. Not because of any purpose to stir up civil governments against us. But preaching the truth. And again, with a gospel heart preaching the truth. Something, again, I think is is a danger for us as conservative Christians today. The attitude we have toward the perversion that is paraded in our midst. And the anger that would be given to us and sent in our direction from the perverse in our culture. How did Paul approach first century ungodly Gentiles? Romans 1. I'm a debtor. This Pharisee that had lived a squeaky clean life by comparison to all of these he describes in Romans 1. When he comes to understand the gospel, sees he has no more claim to the kingdom of God than they do. His sins deserve God's wrath as much or perhaps more than they do. Didn't Christ say it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the cities of Galilee? Cities of Galilee would have kind of been on the right in the cultural spectrum of the first century. Church people God-fearing people didn't receive Christ when He was standing in their midst. Didn't see a need of a Savior who was standing in their midst. Didn't see a need of grace when it was preached in their midst. Didn't see the exposure of self-righteousness when it was preached in their midst. More tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. Paul's attitude. Can you imagine it? Can we enter in and imagine taking the posture of a debtor when we confront the perverse of our culture? Paul took that posture. He preached in a place as vile as Corinth. And if you read the catalog of the types of sinners that were saved there and were members of the church there after they were saved, such were some of you. But you're washed. You've been cleansed by the same blood and clothed with the same righteousness that has been given to me. Paul and the Thessalonians had known tribulations, trials, because of their faith. And I say it is not an unusual thing. The lips of Christ 
the lips of Paul, Peter's epistles, all throughout. This will accompany us. We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom. It's interesting where Paul says in verse 3 that he's concerned that no man should be moved by these afflictions. He's actually not as concerned about the afflictions themselves as any movement that might take place in the Thessalonians because of them. If you consider the opposition, the tribulations that they were enduring, it's not hard to imagine how these trials, these appeals to them to be moved, to come away from the faith, would be brought. The Jews, they can come to this little church in Thessalonica and say, you know, folks, look, I know this guy came through town and we've kind of told you what a bad guy he is. But we're an established, recognized religion. Rome has sanctioned our presence. You don't have that with this Jesus thing. The Gentiles, their friends, neighbors, those that think it's strange that they've changed the way they've changed, can come alongside them and say, look, haven't you suffered enough? Haven't you followed this thing long enough? Just, just let it be. Let it go. Paul is ultimately not concerned that true believers among them will fall away. But I think when he writes to the church, as in so many other cases, he's, he's writing to a corporate body. He knows that within that body of professing believers, there are wheat and tares. There's some that might be moved. Some who perhaps are not yet really converted. It's interesting when he comes in verse 5, he says, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Some interesting things here, commentaries uh, start to delve into. We'll not delve into them today for the sake of time and perhaps ministerial incompetence. But... He switches from the indicative to the subjunctive mood as he goes along. When he speaks about Satan hindering and attempting them, he's in the indicative. He understands this as highly probable, likely. But when he speaks about his labor being in vain, them having given way, he's in the subjunctive. Here's something that is improbable. He's confident that they haven't been moved away. He knows that those really of faith are going to endure, but yet those tears among them. He gives warning to the whole church. And it's certainly a warning that should continue in every expression of the church in every generation. But I think before we leave this first summary term of tribulations, should pause and give some thought to the fact that Paul ascribes these trials, these temptations to depart from the faith, to go back to their old lives. He ascribes this to the tempter. He's mindful of satanic activity in their trials. Now, I think we have to walk a careful line often in the church. 
There's some people that become consumed with the occult. They want to kind of work it out and learn all they can about the, the dark side, if you will pardon that expression. There was a famous fellow making the rounds back <clears throat> in the 70s among evangelical churches. said he'd been high up in the Illuminati, devil worshiper, all that stuff. And many churches couldn't wait to get him in. Telling his stories. How all this is going on behind the scenes. We don't know about it. It's interesting when there's an appetite to hear of, in his case, probably a lot of fiction. And yet no appetite for the doctrine of justification. But while I say there's an extreme there of people becoming overly curious about that which, well, the Scripture says we should be simple concerning evil. It's an interesting juxtaposition of some passages in Paul. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And that's the point here. We need to be mindful that we have an enemy. Be mindful of His influence in the world where the ungodly are taken captive by Him at His will. And that He might, as is displayed for us in this passage, even engage His labors toward believers and toward the professing church. We are in spiritual conflict. And we fool ourselves, we don't do ourselves a service at all by denying the spiritual realities of satanic opposition. But I say to walk that line, to be wise, to to be mindful, to not be ignorant of Satan's devices, but also to be simple concerning evil. Not look into the dark arts and all of these things. Trials that come. We're engaged. I say... Perhaps it's been more subtle. The cultural, day-to-day life parts of tribulation for Christians haven't been our experience. And maybe that's one of the things that's both good and bad. Maybe the fact that we can see these things on the horizon will stir us To be aware that we're in spiritual warfare. To be more careful in our walk with with God and the guarding of our hearts and our lives. But I say the sober reality that tribulations of a more tangible nature could belong to us in the days ahead. What we look at, I say at this chapter first, under the heading and thought of tribulations. But think with me secondly about endurance. Paul has a burden for them. He's willing to suffer himself the loneliness as he would send Timothy away and perhaps even put himself in a position of danger, isolated from fellowship, isolated from the people of God. 
But he sends Timothy to them. Paul, I say, has gone to Athens there for a season alone. Then Timothy present with him. Then alone again as he sends Timothy. We speak and think a little bit about his own risks. His own trials. He'd been persecuted to be sure. Those external forces were waging against waging war against Paul as they were against the Thessalonians, he had the added burden of being in leadership, of having the care of the churches rest upon him, of being distant, of not having social media, of not having the ability to just punch a few numbers in a touchscreen and talk to somebody in Thessalonica. He sends Timothy to them to learn of their affairs, to minister to them, As you read there, they sent, verse 2, Timothy, our brother, fellow labor in the gospel, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. Again, our time is hastened by. But what's Timothy's mission? He's to go there and to establish them and comfort them. To build them up. It's evident from the ministry or the mission Timothy sent on and Paul's own ministry as we read later in the chapter that we need more than simple conversion, if you will. We need to be built up in our most holy faith. We need establishment. And it's not merely just the establishment of the church in Thessalonica. Secure property, build a building, get all the normal stuff going on, get the nursery schedule up, get the Sunday school going. Establishment in their souls. Establishment in the fruit of the Spirit. Establishment in understanding more of the doctrines of the person and work of Christ. And I say here, and you just think of the place, you could almost say in Paul's sending Timothy to them, he was giving them a fuller experience of what we call the means of grace. That Timothy, Paul's companion in the faith. Timothy, one more versed in the doctrines of the Gospel. Could be able to review the Gospel with them. To take them deeper on in the things of the Gospel. To help them to be strong against the trials, the whispering of the self-righteous Jews and the worldly, ungodly Gentiles that both say, come our way. Leave this Jesus thing. And so here, their endurance, Paul's confidence that they will endure this spiritual opposition is going to be grounded very practically, I say, in the means of grace. In being established and being encouraged. Again, it's one of those lies the flesh would tell us. Deeper into the things of God is dry. Going deeper into the things of God isn't practical. You let the church for a generation or two, like the 20th century, cast off the doctrines of the gospel, an understanding of the person and work of Jesus the details of the gospel with regard to our need, our inability of God's initiating sovereign grace 
of Christ's real atoning sacrifice. And very practically speaking, the church winds up in real practical trouble. It winds up looking more and more like the world that it's been called out from. Paul sends Timothy that the Thessalonians might deepen their understanding. And I say what to the fleshly religious mind is not really true. Ironically, their being established is a component part of their being encouraged. The practical outworking of that establishment, it touches their lives. It helps them. And what have we seen true of the Thessalonians all along prominently in chapter 1 where they received the word in much affliction with joy. That this deepening understanding of the gospel is part of their endurance. It's a source of joy. And we see endurance also exemplified not only in Paul sending Timothy and his mission to Thessalonica, but his own desire to be with them again. It would be some time before Paul was able to visit Thessalonica again. But Paul says here in the latter part of the chapter, and he engages in a record of a prayer for them. Verse 10, Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. That I might be used as I'm sending Timothy as a means of grace to your soul. To preach more. To open and allege even further from the Scriptures this Jesus. And it is this growth, this real Christian experience that allows them to have endurance in the face of tribulations. But come with me if you would thirdly to our final thought and summary term. And that is fruitfulness. If you look in verse 6, the report that Timothy gives to Paul as he's visited Thessalonica and then returns and Paul is pulled out of this care and concern for them that he's shown. He says in verse 1 and verse 5, he repeats that phrase, I could no longer forbear. I wanted Timothy with me, but I needed something else more. I needed to know how you were. And it's interesting here, because if you, if you look at Paul and, and his heart there, he says, verse 7, Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your, by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Paul's life is wrapped up in the health and the spiritual security and stability of these Thessalonian believers. It's kind of like chapter 2. The mother and the father. You parents among us know you're wrapped up in the lives of your children. Jane and I used to almost laugh. You know, you get a little breather Mom or mother-in-law comes over, babysits the kids, go out, nice dinner. Nobody spills ketchup unless, well, one of the two adults has an accident and drops their plate or something. What do you talk about over dinner? Kids. 
you're kind of looking forward to getting back home because you see how the kids are. You know, Grandma can't handle it's like they didn't do it before. But, you know, your life's wrapped up in them. Well, here's Paul. His heart is for them. As a parent, he yearns for them. But what he hears of Timothy as he sent them, verse 6, when Timothotheus was come from you unto us, brought us good tidings of your faith, their standing in the gospel, and love, charity, and contrary to the faults accusations against Paul that are so evident in chapter 2 that were going on, and that you have good remembrance of us, desiring greatly to see us. And so what Paul hears as a report from Timothy, just focus on that love. Then you come down to verse 12 in the midst of his prayer. He says from verse 11, God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way into you. I'm praying that God will open the door and the time and the way for me to come again. But that the Lord, verse 12, would make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all, even as we do toward you. To the end, He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Fruitfulness. It's interesting if you compare verse 6 to verse 12. Something that he hears a report that they have. Love. He prays they might get more of. And what an expression, not only of love, but of all the fruit of the Spirit. Real Christianity is going to bear the marks of changed hearts and lives. The fruit of the Spirit will be present in the hearts of those that are regenerated. Those who have passed from death unto life. Death has all that characterizes it. Transgression of God's law. Not loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not loving our neighbor as we should. Life has those things given unto us. Imparted to us through the Spirit. Regeneration. Love to God, love to our neighbor, impacting very practical stuff. And yet, we've not yet attained. We don't experience or express this fruitfulness perfectly. So Paul can pray and does pray that the very things they have in reality, that they will get more of that they will grow, to borrow another text, that they will grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a verse I would leave with you. As we can compare our changing circumstances to the circumstances of the Thessalonians in the first century, it's not different game plan not political activism certainly not political violence it's the fruit of the spirit 
It's being unmoved by spiritual assault. It's by recognizing that we're strangers and pilgrims here. We've been the recipients of the grace of God to save us from our sins and their penalty and to bring us to God's right hand in glory forever. That's going to give us an anchor to cast in changing times for ourselves. And so the very things that Paul knew the Thessalonians were going to be tried with, they're going to be present for us. And I say these terms we've sought to use to summarize this chapter, tribulations, endurance, and fruitfulness. May we pray that as our tribulations perhaps increase, but certainly are present, that our endurance and our fruitfulness might increase. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come and ask today that You might take up these words that are inspired and that were written to a church of 2,000 years ago. But the very same truth, very similar circumstances, and believers in the same gospel, the same Christ, that we might hear them and we might be more established and more encouraged today. So bless your word to every heart we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.